Uh, we are in part eight of our sermon series uh, from this fall called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. We're in the last part of the series, and over the last seven weeks, we've been, remember that our theme image has been the iceberg, which says that only 10% of the iceberg is visible above the surface, but 90% lays hidden beneath. And many of us hide the 90% of our lives that God wants us to uncover so that we can love God and love others out of the best version of ourselves in Christ Jesus. Now, before I go into part uh, eight today, I want to uh, give you an idea and a heads up of what's coming up here in November at Outer West. We have some exciting things coming up. Uh, number one, uh, next week, we're going to begin a brand new series. And this series is called Life Together. And we're going to kick the series off with a guest speaker. And this is a phenomenal preacher. You don't want to miss it. His name is Andrew Arndt. He's a, a teaching pastor at New Life Church Colorado Springs. And he'll be joining us next Sunday um, to kick off our Life Together series. And in this series, we're specifically looking at Acts chapter 2 and the characteristics of the early church. And here's some of the things that we find in it. The early church was devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And Angel will uncover that. And the week after that, Dan's going to preach on their devotion to prayer. After that, we'll talk about how they shared everything they had with one another. There was this commonality between each other and generosity that we'd never seen before. And then the last part, part four of the series, we'll cover that the early church met in the temple courts, with, for our context as the church, but also met from home to, from home, to home. And so... The fourth Sunday of the series, which is Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to do something different. We're doing our first Thanksgiving initiative called the At Home Initiative. So what that means is the last weekend of the year, we will not be having services here on Sunday morning. Instead, we're going to meet from home to home. Number one, to hear a short online teaching. Number two, to break bread together. That could be a Thanksgiving meal. That can be just having the Lord's Supper together. And number three, to pray together and give God thanks in the season of Thanksgiving. And I know some of you guys have plans all week for Thanksgiving. You got your HEB order ready to go. You know what you're going to make. You have the guest list ready. And so that might mean that week that you're busy on Sunday morning instead of joining us here since we won't have service. You're meeting at homes with a small group of people to celebrate what God is doing and to reflect the life of the early church, which was organic and community-based. And now others of you might not have a place to celebrate Thanksgiving. In fact, we know that based on what Dan just shared about the loneliness epidemic in our country, but also San Antonio being a transient city, which means that many of you have moved here and are here for a short period of time, so you might not have family members or friends to celebrate Thanksgiving week with. And so starting Wednesday of that week, we'll have uh, homes that are going to be host, uh, hosting Thanksgiving get-togethers, and so I want to invite you to join one of those if you don't have a place to celebrate Thanksgiving. And so again, Thanksgiving week, no service that Sunday, but instead we'll meet home to home celebrating all that God has done and giving thanks to him by meeting together, listening to a teaching, breaking bread together. You can find more info at outerwest.org slash at home. And then right after service at 12 p.m. today, I'm going to send you an email with some next steps that you can take about our at home initiative. You guys got all that? If you, do, if you forget, you can go back, outerwest.org slash at home or check that email. We're so excited that uh, we as a church want to live out what it means to not just be a church that's confined to four walls of a building, but is community-based, living out what it means to be the early church and the organic church of Christ that belong to each other, do life together, not just in a building, but from home to home as well. Well, we're in part eight of our sermon series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. I don't know if you've heard the story of the elephant in the circus. Now, the story goes that there's a man. He goes to a circus, and he sees this elephant. And this elephant is standing there with a small rope tied to its front leg. And this man is astonished because he sees the elephant and knows that this elephant can easily break apart from this rope. And so he asks one of the circus trainers, what is this elephant doing, and why isn't he breaking free? 
The trainer tells this man, well, this elephant had the same small rope tied to its leg since it was a baby. And when it was a baby, the small rope was enough to stop him. So his entire life, he has grown accustomed to the rope around him. And now he believes that he can no longer break free from this chain. Now, this man is astonished again because he realizes that this elephant does not realize its identity and does not even realize its inner strength. Not only that, this elephant doesn't even realize because it's accustomed to this environment of the circus that an elephant doesn't actually belong in the surface. It belongs out in the wild. The elephant, though, has become accustomed to the environment of the circus. And I share the story with you because I think that the modern-day American church is the elephant and the circus is the world and the culture that we find ourselves in. See, Jesus calls us to not be of this world, but many times those who follow Jesus look like a carbon copy of the world that they find themselves in, and they don't realize that the environment, the culture, the values that they've given themselves to do not reflect the God that they follow. Jesus talks about this balance in John chapter 17, and that's where we're going to turn quickly, John chapter 17, verse 15. This is one of Jesus' final prayers before he departs from the earth. John chapter 17, verse 15, he says this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Here we find Jesus sharing two major themes. Number one, he says, they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. Now, the word world is used all throughout the New Testament. And at times it refers to a physical location or the earth that we live in. But within the context of Jesus' prayer in this moment, the word world does not refer to a physical location or the earth. It refers to a, value, a system of values. A non-spiritual position. And Jesus is saying there are values of the culture that you find yourself in that you do not belong to. And some translations of verse 16 are better translated, not that they are not of this world, but they do not belong to this world. And Jesus is saying our identity is not in this domain just as it wasn't for him as well. So you and I do not belong to this world. It's values, it's routines, it's rhythms, it's structures. But there's a balance because Jesus also says, just as I have been sent to the world, I have sent them into the world. So you and I are not of this world, but sent to this world. And that word sent there implies purpose. That word sent there implies mission. That word sent there implies distinction. That word sent there is kind of like an ambassador. Our country, the United States, uh, we have many ambassadors all across the world. And here's how the United States defines an ambassador. A U.S. ambassador is the president's highest-ranking representative to a country or international organization abroad. They are to be the voice and face of the United States in another context. So when Jesus says, you you and I are not of this world but sent to the world, this is what he is implying. Which means that you and I, we live our lives as pastors and Work at uh, stay-at-home moms and teachers and retirees and businessmen and musicians and military personnel and so on. But you are not sent to this world to accomplish the mission, vision, and values of your boss or the organization you work for. You have been sent here with a purpose by Jesus. Not of this world, but sent to this world. Which means that we are to live in a way counter to the structures and values of this world 
world. Again, this implies distinction. This implies intentionality on our part. The problem is that far too many people that claim to be followers of Jesus look like the world that they live in, reflect the values of the world that they find themselves in. And so today, to embrace the intentionality that is required to be not of this world, but know that we have a purpose to be sent into this world. We're going to look at the, sto- uh, the story of the church, how the, st- how the church began, and how a select few group in the church, the early church, chose to live out the countercultural values of Jesus. Now you may know this, but the church was originally born out of conflict. Our Savior Jesus was crucified for sins that he never committed buried and rose again so that you and I would have newness of life. But the church, the early church, especially in the first few centuries of church history, was a persecuted church. They lived in the Roman Empire, and many of the emperors would persecute the church. They would throw them into the Colosseum to be devoured by the beast because of their faith in Jesus and because of their refusal to publicly acknowledge their Roman gods. And the church would be killed because of their faith in Jesus. In fact, you know, when we celebrate uh, 4th of July and New Year's Eve, we celebrate with fireworks and Roman candle. That's where the word Roman candle, that term comes from. Nero, one of the emperors during that time, to blame shift and to uh, put the blame on Christians for a fire that broke out in Rome at the time, he persecutes Christians by tying them to stakes and burning them alive and putting them all throughout the Colosseum. That's where the term Roman candle comes from. And this is what Christians, those who had the same faith you and I have, endured during the first three centuries of church history. But things start changing a little bit because Emperor Constantine comes into place. Now, Constantine was one of the first emperors in the third century that leaned into Christianity. He began to embrace some of it. In fact, he signs the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity a legal religion for the first time. Now, for the next 25 years, Constantine would show Christians favoritism. He knew that Christianity continued to grow throughout persecution and they were influential and the numbers were slowly growing and he knew that he needed the church for his own support. So he built churches. He honored bishops. It was one of the first times you begin to see laymen and clergy being separated. It was Constantine honoring some of the church bishops and fathers. He called church councils together that were uh, integral to the formation of the early church. He passed laws that reflected the teachings of Christianity. Now, this was pivotal for the followers of Jesus. Look at it this way. Before Constantine took place as emperor in the Roman Empire, 10% of the empire was Christian. After Constantine's reign, over 50% of the empire was Christian. So we see this massive growth. And you might say, well, that's amazing. And in some ways, Constantine helped Christianity. The problem, though, was the numerical growth that Christianity saw brought about many complexities. There was this transition from Christians being persecuted to now being the major religion of the empire. And this compromised what it truly meant to be a follower of Jesus. And there were even perks for being a Christian. So some people would just sign up to be a Christian so they could get promotions and positions and have public images. And what you had in Rome was an institutionalized church for the first time in its life. A reshaping of what it meant to follow Jesus. A faith not built on following Jesus, but shaped around culture and the condition of the time. Not only that, you begin to see for the first time religion and politics being mixed together. Why? Because now the emperor was Christian. But this blend of culture and politics and religion and Christianity led to corruption and abuse of power. It led to Christianity becoming fashionable and mainstream. 
Gerald Sitzer, in his amazing book, A Water from a Deep Well, he says that during this time, Christianity went from being a persecuted religion to being a privileged religion. The empire went from hating Christians to being a Christian or loving Christians. You might say, what's, what's wrong with that? The problem was the church even through the life and ministry of Jesus and his early followers into the first few centuries, had a very obvious, distinctive goal. Stand firm in the midst of persecution. Stand firm to the countercultural values of the kingdom of God. It was a holy calling, a high calling, and many were even martyred for that. And because of their martyrdom, you and I are here this morning. It's why Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but ultimately what happened is that all throughout the empire during Constantine's reign, many people claimed to be Christian, but not many people knew what it meant to truly follow Jesus. It sounds like a similar empire that we find ourselves in, a similar culture that we ourselves are in. According to the Pew Research Center from last year, 63% of Americans still claim to be Christian. But what does that mean to be Christian? In the Roman Empire during the reign of Constantine, it meant pledging allegiance to the empire and to the emperor because being a Christian meant that you'd inherit more opportunities, more power, more respect. In our country, we've seen at recent times being Christian, being voting for one specific political party or being Christian, meaning you go to church on Easter and on Christmas or you go to church once a month. What is it? What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? And Christianity began to be fashionable and mainstream and casual. Now, around the same time, there was a group of Christians that were committed to the countercultural values of God's kingdom. They wanted to reject this fashionable Christianity and accept the countercultural values of Jesus. They wanted to reclaim old standards of discipleship. And for this group, their enemy was not the Roman Empire that was now persecuting them and wanting to kill them. Their enemy was a church that had become one with the world. Their enemy was no longer persecution. Their enemy was privilege. Now, these men and women are what we call in church history the desert saints. Now, if you don't know about them, here's what the desert saints were. These were people during the third and fourth century. They withdrew from the empire and they fled and they retreated to the deserts of the time in Syria and in Egypt and other parts of the Middle East. And they did that not to get away from the culture, but to be alone with God. They were stripped away from the attachments of the world. They walked in the footsteps of the Israelites who wandered the desert for 40 years. They walked in the footsteps of John the Baptist who was in the wilderness. They walked in the footsteps of Jesus who was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. They walked in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul who went into the deserts of Arabia after his initial conversion. They walked in their footsteps to be stripped away, not just to run away, but the desert was now a place of formation for them, away from the food and the possessions. In the desert, it wasn't fashionable to be Christian. In the desert, you didn't have big buildings where people came to hear you preach. It was just you and God. It was what they called a battle for their souls. Not to be sold out to convenience and ease and casualness, but to figure out what it truly means to abide in Jesus. Now, we learn from their stories and glean from what they did, not so that I can tell you to go and run away into the hill country and eat bugs and leave your families. We learn from their stories because there is a battle for our souls. When Jesus says, you and I do not belong to the values of this world, but have been sent into it for purpose and with a purpose, 
There's a battle where we figure out what that means to count the cost of what it means to be sent people. Not to be people shaped by the world, but people shaped by Jesus and contribute to the world that we live ourselves in. We find ourselves in a world similar to the world of the desert saints, where being a Christian is tied to labels and political leverage, and not purpose and self-denial and discipline and genuine love for one another. Now, what they brought to Christianity, when you look back at church history, was a structure, a game plan of what it means to live in a world as sent people. They were influential in what we call the rule of life, or what's known as the rule of life. Now, if you don't know what a rule of life is, here's what it is. A rule of life is an agreed-upon plan that organizes your way of living around Jesus. It's an agreed-upon plan that organizes your way of living around Jesus. In other words, it was their way of living in the world, but by the values of being a follower of Jesus. Let me pause and say this. One of the many reasons that people leave Christianity is because it seems overtly legalistic, or there's constraints, or it squeezes the joy out of you. And so associating Christian faith with rules seems counterintuitive, but the rule of life is not meant to restrict us, it's actually meant to liberate us. Pete Scazzaro says this, a rule of life has the purpose of infusing joy into us rather than squeezing it out. And the word rule comes from the ancient Greek word for trellis. Now, here's what a trellis is. In a vineyard, what you'll find is grapevines. And for them to be off the ground and growing upward, to be fruitful and productive, they lean on this trellis that allows it to grow upward. In the same way, a rule of life is a trellis that helps us abide in Christ and become more fruitful spiritually. It has been said that a rule of life is an exterior framework for an inward journey with Jesus. It's kind of like a scaffolding that you would use to build a building. Instead, it's a scaffolding, a structure that puts in place a way for us to spiritually build ourselves and our individual lives with God. Again, a rule of life, an agreed-upon plan that organizes your way of living around Jesus. Now, you might ask, what is this desert change rule of life? Where would you get this? It's not in the Bible. Now, in our next series, we're going to look at the book of Acts, and I want to go through that passage because we see a rule that organized the early church's way of living around the values of Jesus. Here's what we find, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled in awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What you find here is a rule a set of values that organized the way that they lived. They had a specific way of living, a plan. They devoted themselves to teaching, devoted themselves to fellowship, breaking bread together, prayer, to sharing things in common, to living in community. Every day they met at church, and then they also met home to home. These were values that shaped the way that they lived their lives. This was their rule. And here's the thing about the vine and the trellis. In a vineyard, if a grapevine doesn't have a trellis, it has no place to grow upward. 
It's not going to be as fruitful and productive. It might even become trampled upon or taken over by the things on the ground. And for many of us, the reason why we don't have a distinction from the world and a distinction that we are sent with a purpose and do not belong to the values of this world is that there are external forces that pull us to the left and to the right and cut us off from abiding in Jesus, the true vine. There are seductions and distractions of this world that pull us to the left and right, and they're all too real. So that means for us to resist what the world calls us to, the values that this world calls us to, we don't just try harder, but we have to be intentional in crafting a rule, a plan that will help us do what Jesus has called us to do. The problem, the problem is that many of us are not intentional when it comes to our walk with Jesus. We go to church and we expect that church attendance means that we would grow into followers of Jesus. We hear good sermons or read good books or listen to good podcasts or sing good songs. And we expect that to translate into being good followers of Jesus. We just hope that someday we'll become followers of Jesus or become more Christ-like in what we do. And I play a little bit of basketball. And I imagine that one day I'm just hoping that because I play a little bit of basketball that I'm just going to immediately turn into Stephen Curry. You guys are laughing, but I have a similar jump shot to his. But I'm not Steph Curry. No matter how much I hope. In fact, Steph Curry has been playing basketball since his early ages. There was a commitment, a devotion to it. And later on, there was diet, a commitment to his diet and a way of living. There was an intentional plan for cultivating a life that would reflect the values that he saw in becoming a great basketball player. Many of us just hope that we would walk upon being a Christ-like follower of Jesus with the distinction that we live countercultural values to this world. But Jesus calls us to a higher calling, one that requires intentionality. Worship team, you guys can come on up as I get ready to wrap up this morning. It requires intentionality for us to have distinction in our lives as people who are not of this world but sent to this world by Jesus. Now I know what you're thinking. You want me to create a plan or a structure and organize my life? My life is already crazy. I got schedules to keep and calendars to keep. Uh, there's no time to do this. You're giving me more homework to do. Now here's what I want to say, and here's a challenge for you this morning. Whether you realize it or not, you have already given yourself to a rule or an organized way of living that reflect the values of this world. Whether you realize it or not, you've already been shaped by culture. Think about the concept of time. Jesus didn't have clocks or calendars or schedules to keep. All that has been man-made over the last few centuries. You and I are now bound by it. We have calendars to keep. So we get up at a certain time and schedules to keep. We drop our kids off at a certain time, go to work at a certain time, go home, go to sleep at a certain time. We are bound by the calendars and time that we find. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm simply pointing out that there is a rule, an organized way of living based on the calendars that you follow. Or think about time to pause and take a break. When we heard the sermon on the Sabbath, some of you said, I love the Sabbath. I love the idea that God wants us to rest. But then you went right back into your busy schedules. You said, I don't have time to pause. But think about this. Every time a birthday comes around, you pause. Not only do you pause, you go buy a cake. You go buy presents. Not only do you do that, you set out time to celebrate it. Again, nothing wrong with celebrating birthdays. But your life is organized by certain values. Some of you, every time you remember the loss of a loved one, you take time to remember and pause. 
think of good times or look through pictures. Again, nothing wrong with it, but there are structures and rhythms in life that force us to pause and reflect. Halloween's right around the corner. So that means the structure that has been handed to America is that we will spend over $12 billion this week. Again, nothing wrong with taking your kids to go get some candy. But I just want you to know you're already following a set structure given to you by the world that you live in. And then in a few weeks, Thanksgiving's coming up, and so Americans will spend over a billion dollars on Thanksgiving. And then you're going to cram in lots of cooking and cleaning and prepping and hosting to the point where you're exhausted and you're wondering afterwards, did anyone really like that food that I made and it's killing you because no one complimented you? You're killing yourself because it's the structure that's been handed to you. This is what you're supposed to do. And then on Christmas, as the holidays continue, Americans will spend close to a trillion dollars. And no one thinks about it as we're doing, committing a sin or doing something wrong. And it's not. It's okay to buy some gifts for your loved ones. But I just want you to know there are a set of structures and a rule that has been handed to you by culture that you are already following. Some of you, the cowboys play at 12, so you're getting ready to get out of here. Values that shape who you are and what you do. It's all around us. Activities, calendars. I can't take Sabbath on Saturdays. My kids have this activity and then this activity and this activity. Again, there's nothing wrong with activities. I'm just showing you that there are structures and rules that you already live by. The problem is that when it comes to following Jesus, we have no intentional plan or rule that shapes us to be people that are not of this world and live counterculturally people with a purpose and a plan, people that are ultimately called just to abide in Jesus. Does it sound like I'm yelling at you guys? Here's the thing. I think someone said a little bit, but here's the thing. I'm kind of just over us doing church the way it's always done. I've been in this my whole life. It's basically born into a Pentecostal church. I went to church every single Sunday. This is all I know. After I graduated high school, I went right into seminary. At some point, I've asked myself, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? It's just going to church on Sundays so we can check off a box. Is it being part of a life? What is, what is it? And when Jesus shares in this passage, in his final prayer, Father, I have sent them into this world just like I have been sent into the world. There is a purpose. There is a distinction. There is intentionality to you and I being here. This is temporary. So that means we don't give ourselves to the values of this world. We give ourselves to the values of following Jesus. It might mean for us to be intentional in creating a rule of life. Now, I don't have time to get into practically what a rule of life is, but what we'll do is this week on our uh, messages page, go to part eight of the series, and I'll drop in there some resources of what it means to craft a rule of life. But here are some of the things that should shape a rule of life for you. Scripture, one of the values of God's kingdom. So into your rule, into your organized way of living, you might incorporate that before you put your kids to bed that you're going to teach them Scripture. It's a value of God's kingdom and you might incorporate them. Silence and solitude might mean that instead of taking vacations every year, you take a weekend to be alone with your spouse in a retreat somewhere. That's reflecting on what God has done and what he's doing in your life. 
It might mean embracing rhythms of rest where you're not just going from meeting to meeting to meeting to being productive to being more productive to getting bonuses and raises and promotions. It might just mean resting. Rhythms of pausing. It might mean that this year, instead of spending over a trillion dollars as a country, that some of us as followers of Jesus would reject the countercultural values of consumerism and embrace the values of God's kingdom of generosity. I'm not saying don't buy your kids Christmas gifts. But lean into the values of God's kingdom. It might mean embracing values of simplicity. Not always getting the latest and greatest car and phone and gadget. Being attached to the things of this world, knowing that every single one of those things will fade away at some point. It might mean just enjoying your weekend with your kids. Some Christians just need to have more fun. It might mean serving others through mission. It might mean caring for your bodies. That might be a value. Christianity is one of the only religions that places a holy value on our physical bodies, knowing that although they will pass away, God will one day redeem it, just like he will our creation. So we take care of the earth. We take care of ourselves. It's rooted all throughout Christian theology. It might mean taking care of your bodies for the first time in your life. It might mean embracing emotional health. It might mean embracing your family, your community. It might mean giving yourself to the local church. There are so many values of God's kingdom. And maybe the next step simply, this is overwhelming for you, maybe the next step is this week you sit down by yourself or with your family and you begin to look at your week and you look at how many things, to do, schedules, tasks do I have this week that reflect the values of this world and this culture? How many things do I have on that list that reflects the values of God's kingdom? That might show you whether or not you are intentional in being not of this world and being here with a purpose to follow Jesus. It might mean that this Thanksgiving, you hear that we're doing the at-home campaign and you're saying, I got too many things to do. My guest list is full already. It might mean you reflect the values of God who says, the table is open for anyone, and so you might open up that guest list to a neighbor that has nowhere to eat a Thanksgiving meal. What would it look like for us in every single thing that we do to live counterculturally according to the values of Jesus? It's not worth doing this just to squeeze our way into heaven or to shape our lives after the thief on the cross. Hey, the thief on the cross, he did all sorts of things, and at the last minute he prayed to Jesus on his deathbed, and then he got in. What is our motive for following Jesus? What does it mean to be followers of Jesus? What does it mean to be Christian in a country that claims to be 63% Christian? But Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to eternity. It might just mean examining. What are the values, the rules that I've given myself to? And how can I intentionally craft a rule that allows me to abide in Jesus, my family to abide in Jesus, and live in a way that reflects the values of God's kingdom? Let me pray for you as we close. God, we thank you. following you is a holy calling, a high calling. Not one rooted out of legalism, but one rooted out of us giving ourselves to you and abiding in the vine. We thank you for early Christians who paused, who took a step back from the empire and said, this is not it. This is not what it means to follow Jesus. So we're going to be intentional and embracing self-denial, embracing simplicity, embracing scripture, and embracing a rejection of possessions, embracing 
at caring for ourselves and our bodies and embracing the values of loving God and loving others and sharing with others and generosity and embracing what it truly means to live on purpose as salt to the earth. May we not be saltless, bland to the earth. May we, may we add and we flourish knowing that you have given yourself up on that cross. Died, buried, rose again on the third day so you, all of us would have newness of life. That our lives are not defined by the flesh but abiding in God. A spirit-led life. May we just take a step back as some early Christians did and say, is this what it means to follow Jesus? And how can we intentionally craft a plan, an organized way of living that reflects the values of God's kingdom? May we give ourselves to you and say, God, here I am. Here I am to worship, which means to give myself to you in everything I do. Here I am, Lord. May we be like Isaiah. And you ask, whom shall I send and who will go before me? Isaiah says, here I am, Lord. We be like that as a church, as individuals, and in our families. Will we take a next step in counting the cost to follow you? It's in your precious name we pray. And the church said, Amen.